Professor, thanks so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Good morning. I'd like to begin by talking about your new book, Misbelief. Why are human beings so susceptible to embracing misinformation, let's say? So, so first of all, I, uh, I have to say that if we kind of rolled back the time 10 years, um, I, I wouldn't have said that this is a big problem and I wouldn't have understood it at the severity that I do now. And, and as you know from the book, I didn't choose this uh, problem, it chose me. Uh, I was, uh, one, one video that I saw was a video that uh, described how because of my injury, because of all my burns uh, and all my time in hospital, I started hating healthy people. And that's why I joined Bill Gates and the Illuminati to try and kill as many healthy people as possible. So, but, so, so whatever propelled me into it, I, I spent a long time um, years trying to understand this this issue and you know think about cookies uh, cookies were designed uh, to tap the humanity in a way that gets us to eat too many of those it's salt sugar fat all in the right combination and, and they're trying to design to you know <laughs> basically attack us in in the best possible way and um, misbelief is attacking us in in many ways. It's not just through our uh, taste buds. It's attacking us in many ways. And it's a system. It's not one thing. And in, in the book, I describe the fact that stress is kind of the breeding ground for misbeliefs. Then you have information, cognition, your personality, and then you have the social, the social element. And the social element, I don't just mean, uh, you know, social networks. I mean, the feeling of belonging, the feeling of being um, ostracized, uh, the need to say extreme things so that you um, show yourself to be loyal, identity. So basically, it's a, it's a from a social science perspective, every time we look at like one small thing, this is not the case here. Uh, we need to understand the big picture, and the big picture is very, very frightening. <clears throat> but if you ask me why... Why is it so much? Why do we have so much now? I think it's on one hand, the stress is kind of unprecedented in terms of, um, you know, the, the, the financial stress, uh, COVID, uh, what's happening in the world, inequality, all of those things are adding to it. Uh, we have more choice in which media uh, we want to listen to. Um, our identity are tied with our beliefs in a way that is unprecedented. And the social elements are very, very strong. So, so all of it is creating a time where um, the amount of this is, is going high. And, and what is very, very important to think, to think about is that the consequences are really not just consequences to the individuals, the consequences to society as it refers to trust. So, you know, in a society, we have to move forward. We have to do all kinds of things. Um, imagine we had COVID-23 now. How many people would comply? Every, every percentage of people that decide that they don't trust, they don't comply, and so on, is creating a lot of damage for other people. So, so anyway, it's a, it's, a, it's a system. It's a system. And I think, you know, we think about how we developed evolutionary this is a system that developed evolutionary, uh, but not for, um, not for our benefit. You discussed in your book the steps that the human brain takes when 
taking in misinformation or information in general. Can you discuss that a bit? Yeah. So, so as we said, there's these four elements, right? There's the, the stress, cognition, personality, and, and social. If we focus for a minute on the, on the cognition side, this is kind of you know, supposed to be like the most rational processing, uh, two things happen. You know, when, when we look at the world, the regular world, we get to choose uh, which source of information we want. Do we want NBC? Do we want Fox News? Like, where, wh what, what, do we, what do we want? Uh, online, um, we don't understand that we're making these choices. So, so if you end up choosing Fox News, you know you chose Fox News. But if you go on one of the social platforms and you chose things that look like Fox News, you end up with a worldview that you don't know, but they've chosen for you and you have chosen and you're in a, in a Fox News situation. So there is um, selection. There's a whole range of information. We pick a part of it. The algorithm picks a part for us and, and we go down that path, not necessarily even fully knowing what we are exposed to. But, but the second component is, is more amazing about the human mind, but actually more devastating. And this is our ability to distort the information to fit what we thought in the beginning. And this goes under the general term of motivated reasoning. So if I want to believe a certain thing and I get uh, information that doesn't fit that, I say, oh, no, it doesn't count. Here's all the flaws in it. Or I say, oh, they really do support my belief. There's all kinds of mechanisms that do that. But even on the part of the information, it's not emotion, it's not personality, kind of the part that you would think, oh, this is the part where we would be the most rational. Even there, we have these two big mistakes. You know, these days, everybody is yelling about artificial intelligence. I'm not going to pretend I'm smart enough to know anything about what that really means, but I know what it can mean. And I know that the development and evolution of it may impact your theses and your analyses. How do you anticipate that happening? Yeah. So, you know, if you think about humanity and you think about development in, in, in everything we've done, uh, uh, the human being have always been the weakest part of the link. <laughs> so, uh, you know, think about Think about this chair I'm sitting on, right? Uh, my body is very fragile. Somebody made a chair with a cushion and with wheels and all kinds of things saying, you know, I, to save Dan, to save you some work and to save your, your <laughs> yeah, to, for you to be comfortable for you to sit for longer, he will do it. We understand that, that the body is, is weak and fragile and so on when we design, you know, houses and heaters and all kinds of things. We understand we don't remember as much and, and so on. Now, we, of course, invent it, but if you look at our regular behavior, we understand our limitations and we go with it. Um, <clears throat> I, think, I think that in, in this new technology, um, AI, um, we might become the strong link, uh, relatively speaking, right? So even though we are susceptible and so on, um, if you ask, what should we try and do? Can we, when this technology is out there, I think the the amount of disinformation and the complexity of it will be so strong. I don't think we could control it. I think what we need to do is to focus on us. 
how do we become better at this? How would we become better at discerning? How do we pause before we share? All kinds of things that are, uh, how do we don't uh, trust things immediately? So, so I think where do we, we need to shift the focus. Like I'm really worried, uh, but, but I don't see what we can do to stop the technology. I think we need to work on ourselves. So that's one. And then the second thing, you know, people are worried about deep fake, that you will see an image of me saying things and it's not really me. That I think is worrisome, but I'll tell you what really worries me. What really worries me is that when you and I will read something online, we will each get a different version and the, diff the version that will get to each of us will be a version that will try be maximally effective in persuading us at this moment, right? Depending on the fact of how we slept and what stress we're under and so on, that worries me. Think about as a piece of information and there's a translation to each person, depending on what uh, they are likely to be the most persuaded about. That's that's a, a frightening version. For me, it's more frightening than deep fake. You know, your approach seems to be, in my view, kind of reverse engineering the solution to, let's say, misinformation. Most measures that are designed to combat it are designed as suppression mechanisms, right? Suppression mechanisms in the law, on the internet, in ways that yeah. make it so that certain people can put out certain information and spread certain information. Yeah. Your information, uh, or rather your approach, is vastly different, right? It focuses on the internal. Why is that more important? So, so, so first of all, I think we have to realize that, that there's lots of limits. Look, if, if there's a terrible piece of news out there, if there's news that uh, you know, is enticing violence or you know, things like that, it's certainly the case that we should uh, expose it. Um, but... Um, I don't think we'll be able to to do it completely. I'll give you I'll give you a, a, an analogy. Uh, in some states, they made rules that people cannot text and drive, and there's a big fine for that. Uh, what happened in those states? More casualty and more car accidents. Why? Because instead of texting over the wheel, people start texting under the wheel. You know, every time that we see a bad behavior, we try to create a rule for it, right? We don't go around and say, what rules can I create? The rules are basically a reaction to something that people do, people do badly. But many times these rules are not based on reasonable assumptions about human beings. So, you know, think about the texting and driving. Like, it's possible that you would say, oh, the moment there will be a fine, people would stop. But it's also possible to say, no, it's not going to work. People are actually going to do uh, something something different. And then there's another thing that I, I'm trying to kind of make sense of it. So imagine, imagine there's a, a piece of uh, fake news about elections, that the elections were stolen. Let's agree that the elections were not stolen, and let's agree for now that there's a piece of news about that. When I think about my kids, um, should they be exposed to zero? Like, I certainly don't want all of their feeds to be covered with that, right? That, that, that is clear. But do I want them to hear zero about that? And my answer is no. I, I think it's important to understand the, the, the range of opinions out there. 
including developing the ability for critical thinking that say, here's a piece of information that doesn't fit everything I know, I, I still want to understand how to think about it, how to resist it, how to dissect it, analyze it, and so on, but I don't want to ignore it. So, so you know, the, the efforts to block something is often not, not officially working, but I think the solution also is not just blocking, the solution is presenting things in the context. And, and you know, maybe this is maybe this is what you're saying, and I think I think it's a good point, which is I think a lot of time the analysis is done at the level of a piece of media. What is this piece of media? What is this piece of media? My analysis is at the level of the individual. Here is my daughter, and how is she able to fight, to understand, to be persuaded, and so on. And one piece of information could be terrible in the context of lots of those pieces of information, but if it's one from a hundred and it actually gets her to be more critical, that's not that bad. Now, this is a huge challenge. It's a huge challenge about how do we move from an analysis based on individual piece of information to an analysis of the, the, what the person is exposed to. But I think that's what we need to protect. We need to protect the people. Why is empathy so important when dealing with this issue? Yeah. So, so look, um, uh, imagine, um, so, so this, uh, I made this uh, thing for my, for my new book, but on the other side, I, I did this thing and it's the sun and the planet. And it says, well, this is awkward because I don't know if you can see, but earth is flat. Um, it, it's one of my favorite um, uh, misbeliefs is that the Earth is flat. Um, you know, imagine you dated um, somebody that believed the Earth is flat. It would be difficult to introduce them to your friends and to your parents and so on. But it's possible. What if you believed in somebody that believed that COVID was a hoax? That would be tougher. Why would it be tougher? Because in COVID, uh, lots of people work together. Lots of people um, restricted themselves and did all kinds of things for the common good, right? Forget we, it was based on right decision, wrong decision, but we, we kind of worked together. And there were some people that says, we're not helping, we're not contributing, and so on. So it was not just, like if somebody doesn't believe that the earth is round, they don't change the, the earth. Somebody believed that COVID was a hoax. They can actually uh, influence uh, the the spread of of the disease. Um, and and because of that, we ostracized them, right? So, um, you know, you must have been in a place where somebody came up with some misbelief, and people made joke about them. Now, the way it worked is that the person who makes a joke thinks they're making a small joke, and the people who are um, getting the joke, are the, the, the target of the joke think it's a very offensive, and that creates a separation. And, and if we say that stress is the building block of misbeliefs, social resilience is, is an antidote. antidote. Like if you, you, you want to feel trusted and loved and, and, and so on, and, and, the, and, then, and then you can over, we can overcome lots of stress. But we don't, if we don't have our social support and feeling loved and supported and so on, uh, that becomes very, very tough. 
Um, and then, so, so, so I, think, I think empathy is basically saying, here's a person, and we all have those people that over the last few years have changed dramatically, right? Here's a person, did we accelerate their descent in the funnel of misbelief? Could we have done something else? Can we help? Right? It's one thing to say, oh, the government should do something, but, but what is our role? Our role too is, you know, we all have people that we love, that have changed, that have trusted us. You know, I, I'm, I'm in all kinds of places and I can tell you that there's lots of people who I see now are turning to alternative medications for cancer. Right? This, is, this is not good for them, not good for society. All kinds of things are happening. So, so I, I do think that that's, that's true. Um, but I will tell you, um, as kind of empathy as a researcher, um, there was one night that I all of a sudden realized how difficult it is to be a conspiracy theorist, right? So, so really, misbelief is like one step at a time. But, but some people go all the way, and, and let's call them conspiracy theorists. And of course, some conspiracies are correct. But you know, conspiracy is about it's not just Pfizer wants some more money. It's that Bill Gates wants to destroy the world and he got shares in Pfizer and engineered, right? It's, a, it's always a more complex, darker, bigger story. And think about how difficult it is to wake up this way. You know, if you, if you feel stress and you turn to religion, then you believe God is good. Yes, there's a devil, but mostly God wins. Uh, if, you, if you turn to a cult, there's a leader that you admire. The bad things can happen too, but 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 in general, but but if you're a conspiracy theorist, you wake up thinking that the world is an awful place, and everybody's out there to get you, and there's these big evil forces that connect the government and the World Economic Forum and all the wealthy people and a, a network. It's it's a very very tough way to, very very tough way to live, right? You would not you would not wish it to anybody. Like in the beginning. I looked at those people and I felt bad about their attack on me, but then I, I realized how painful their lives are. You know, you actually touched on something I wanted to talk to you about. You wrote last year an article for the Wall Street Journal uh, entitled, How Many Close Friends Does a Person Need? And I read that article and, and it's an important article in my opinion. Have you seen a connection drawn to one's ability to embrace misinformation with loneliness right with the ability to not have your ideas bounce off of other people so on and so forth yeah so um so so kind of in two in two ways i would say that the, uh, you know the, the data is not the data is out there it's not kind of the, the the scientific data that we like but you know we see a reduction in religiosity and and going to church and uh, all kinds of religious um, ceremonies and an increase in um, in in loneliness an increase in uh, conspiracy theories but but I think in two in two important ways um, the first one is the range of things that we get exposed to. You know, if I if I go and uh, and spend time with my with my family, we have a range of opinions, and we have a holiday dinner together, and I I have to get exposed to some of that. Uh, I can't not. Online, I can choose a group of people who believe that 
you know, Canon is a better camera than Nikon, right? It's it's at that level, and I don't I don't ever get um, uh, exposed to to the other thing. So, so so the physical necessity uh, of friendship uh, means that friendship and family means that we necessarily going to be exposed to a a, a broader a broader range. But but the second issue is resilience. And, and resilience is this feeling that somebody will be there to catch you. And there's a, there's a term in, in child development called secure attachment. And, and the general story is as follows. Uh, imagine you have a kid, the kid is four year old, you will go with them to the playground and you say, kid, go to the swing. Kid goes, comes back half an hour later, you've been successful. You have a kid with secure attachment. On the other hand, if the kid is going to the swing but looks back behind their shoulder every 90 seconds to make sure you're still there, not so successful. Now, in, in my view, secure attachment is, is part of resilience, and resilience is that there are two types for it. One is something bad happened, quality of life goes down, can we bounce back? Or can we even get better than what we were? That's kind of the after event. But before the event, there's the feeling of resilience. Saying, what can, I, what can I try in life? What do I have the energy to do? And can I risk it? Can I try new things? And it's about the feeling. This is the, this is the secure attachment part. It's the feeling that if something bad will happen, somebody will catch me. And because of that, I can, I can try things. I can... Um, I can study something, I can try a new business, I can express my opinion. Uh, by the way, in romantic uh, love, it's I can I can be vulnerable. Right? If I if I if 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 you have a significant other and you're always afraid that if you'll say something, somebody might um you know make fun of you or attack you or something like that, uh, you're not going to work. So so this feeling that, that before anything bad ever happened, but the feeling that that there are people on my side just gives a tremendous amount of of energy. Um, by the way, this is why some of the social programs that we have are are really questionable. So, like, you can say, "Oh, you know, we have uh, Medicaid, and people who can't afford health, we 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 give them a health plan." Uh, but because they never know if they could keep it or not, or when it might be taken from them, they don't have that element of resilience. So that they're getting the money, but they don't get the trust that this will be here. So, so I think it's an incredibly important feeling. It, and it, it's basically, if you think about stress, I think it's the best antidote to stress. Professor, our human beings generally in control of their own decision-making power? You know, the question in, in general is a, it's a question of how you, how you define that. Um, there are many, many decisions that we are in charge of and we are in control and so on, uh, but there are many that, we're not, that are not. And, and it's not so much a question, I think, of the number of the decisions. It's a question of the, the magnitude of that. So, so imagine that you only text and drive 1% of the time. You can say, oh, mostly I don't text and drive. Yeah, that's true. But 
from time to time, uh, we, we make mistakes. And the question is, what are the cost of those mistakes? And if we, if we design a system where we drive very fast and the lanes are very close to each other and there are many cars in the way, all of a sudden, even once in a while mistakes are too many. So, so you know, I, I, think, I think that we are capable of making good decisions. I think occasionally we do. I don't think it's that, you know, if I look at all of your decision all the day, I don't think I would say, oh, you know, you're wrong most of the time. But I think we are wrong sufficient amount of time that we end up not sleeping enough and not exercising enough and eating too much and not understanding our political system and not uh, getting our act together about the environment. And, you know, you name it, these are big things. These are big things. You mentioned earlier the importance of trust. Why is trust important to society? So, first of all, we, we can't be experts in everything. We can't. And, and, and we have to make decisions that are outside of our domain of expertise. So, you know, if we, if there's a, a virus, we need to, to trust physicians. If we have, I got burned, right? We need to, we need to trust people. I mean, the, the world is becoming more and more complex, interesting, good, lots of good things. I'm not complaining, but, you know, just think about investing. Wow, my goodness. So many options, so many things. Crypto, yes, no, stocks, bonds, uh, lifestyle funds, uh, annuities, yes, no. We can't be experts in everything. In fact, um, you, you know, just like we're all becoming our own travel agents, right? We're all becoming uh, our own this. It, it, it's too much. So we need, we need to trust. And, and the second, so that's as individuals. And in society, we need to act together. Because imagine, imagine what would happen if we all need to do something together. We need to decide to uh, spend less to curb the inflation. Or we need to decide to vote to increase the amount of uh, taxes so we can have a better infrastructure in 20 years from now. Or all kinds of things like that. We do need to work together. There's lots of things that we need to do together. Um, so, so, so trust also creates this ability to coordinate our efforts and, and do things together as a, as a country. Uh, think about the trust in the elections. Uh, think about trust in the Supreme Court. I mean, uh, trust in the police. Uh, these are unbelievably important. Your book finishes off by discussing hope and offering hope in combating misbelief and misinformation. What is that hope? Yeah. So, so first of all, I should, I should, <laughs> I should say that when I started writing this book, I was hoping I will have a chapter with solutions. I ended up not having solutions. I end up having little sections called hopefully helpful just because they're small things, but, um, as I was working on this book and, and doing this research, I, I realized that the problem is bigger than I thought and more complex than I thought. And I also started calling this not disinformation, but corrosive information, because I wanted to emphasize the idea that um, 
as we get exposed to this stuff, we change. It's not that you say, oh, here's fact A, here's the fact B, it will fix itself. No, somebody who is exposed to some of that will never get back to what, uh, what they were. So that's important. But, but my hope is that if we can, there's a lot of things that need to be done. And I think we're starting to understand how important this problem is. Right? So, so my hope is that we are, we've started to realize the magnitude of the problem recently. And I'm hoping that this book will accelerate that understanding. And then if we understand it and understand the complexity of it and the cost of it and the cost that we're all paying for it, I hope that we will take some serious actions, right? That we will not wait uh, too long. So that's my hope is that we can, we can do better. Um, I don't know yet what the solutions are. Um, it needs to involve lots of players. It needs to involve media. It needs to involve politicians. It needs to involve social networks. It needs to involve stress and, and governments and, and people and friendships and lots of lots of things need to need to improve. Um, but but I think that we are we ca we can handle this challenge as long as we'll decide that this is uh, important. And I hope we'll decide that it's important very soon. Professor, thank you so much for your time, your valuable time, your valuable insight. Thank you.